success. Everybody loves success. Everybody wants to be successful. At something. At some time. I mean, it's a totally positive concept. Success. When you think of something truly momentous, a a real momentous success, I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid watching NASA successfully launch rockets into space. What? What a momentous accomplishment. Men went into orbit around the earth. Men walked on the moon. I mean, that was an amazing success. And and a success that big could only be carried out by by a nation. It took a nation to do that. It It took a whole government to succeed at something like that. Then, just a few years ago, I hear about this guy named Elon Musk. He's just a guy who started a company that successfully launches rockets into space. He's not a government. He's not a whole nation. He's just a guy with a, gover- with, a, with a company. And NASA doesn't even send rockets into space anymore. They contract with Elon Musk. That's amazing to me. What a success. You know, after being fascinated with success, the next thing we want to know is, how did you do it? Right? How did you get so successful? What did you do to be a success? And so we'll read in books and articles and blogs how it is that people are successful. We'll watch TV interviews and YouTube videos to see successful people to learn how they, how they were successful because we're attracted to this. Here's, this is kind of like the space program. There are hundreds of people who have successfully replaced the passenger side headlights in their 2002 Ford Escapes. I know because I have watched their videos on YouTube. And guess what? Using their method, I too am successful. There are hundreds of people who've done this. Success is attractive. And success comes from proven methods. Would-be rocket builders will use the methods they see others use to achieve success. Shade tree mechanics will adopt the methods that will help them succeed so they can make, uh, make, a, they can make their next own five-minute YouTube video. And Christians in Corinth will adopt the methods they use for success in business and civic life to increase their perceived spiritual success in the church. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 to 17 that we looked at last week, where they tried to make themselves appear more spiritual by doing something that they would do out in the secular society by, by championing their favorite Bible teachers. I follow Paul. Makes me more spiritual than you. I follow Cephas. Makes me more spiritual than you. They thought that identifying with spiritual teachers would make them appear more spiritual. But it was an epic failure. It was a failure to launch. First, because they were identifying with men rather than Christ, 
who was crucified for them and into whom they were baptized. You remember Paul saying that. Second, it was an epic failure because it resulted in the failure of division rather than in the success of unity, which is to characterize the church, Christ's body. Is Christ divided? Paul asks, no. So Paul proceeds to explain to them the grounding of true spirituality, which is the wisdom of God. If you want to follow along with your sermon outline, you'll see this theme at the top. The gospel of the cross preached is the wisdom of God and the power of God for the salvation of all who believe in Christ crucified. So I want to read our passage this morning. It's 18, verses 18 to 25. I'm going to begin, I'm going to back up and begin with verse 17 because they two go, the two go together. You keep seeing this word four, right? And verse 17 begins with four. 18 begins with four. 22 begins with four. So, so when we get started, what's, what's this beginning? Four. Well, because Christ is crucified for you, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When, Paul, when Jesus sent Paul to preach the gospel... Paul says there are, two, there are two things involved in that. The preaching of the, of the gospel involves content and method. Content and method. We can talk about each, but in the end, you can't separate them. They go together. The content of the gospel is that Christ was crucified to save sinners. So gospel preaching contains the power to save sinners. However, there is apparently a method of gospel preaching that can empty that content of its power. Paul says, Jesus sent me to preach the gospel and not to preach it with wise words. That is, preaching in a way that spotlights the preacher but results in hiding the cross. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? Because using all the methods of rhetoric valued in Corinth would make you a successful preacher. Everyone knows that from listening to all the great speakers in Corinth, they know this works. 
Listen to that guy. He's revered. And so we want our teachers to be like that. And we want to be like that. Paul, you need some more clever words. Paul, maybe, maybe a bit more humor here and there. Some emotional displays. And skinny jeans. You, you, you can't just say people come. You can't just gather people and preach. You need to, you, you need to expand the worship experience. Preach the gospel, yes. But, but make the gospel a smaller part of a larger multimedia presentation. People don't want a sermon. They want a TED talk. And Paul says, no. You see, because people will grab hold and be impacted by those methods and miss the power of the cross. In fact, I'll be sabotaging my own preaching of the cross if I did that. See, that's doing spiritual things with worldly methods. That's not a greater display of the Spirit. It's an emptying of the cross. That method renders the content of gospel preaching null and void. It empties the cross of its power. Don't you know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't you know that? See, to us, the church of God, those who have been sanctified in Christ and called to be his saints, to we who have experienced the grace of God and the peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, to us who have been saved in our justification and are being saved in our sanctification and will be saved in our glorification in Christ, the word of the cross is the very power of God. We already know this. We have been given and so have received, we didn't do it of ourselves, we've received a new, righteous, and everlasting identity in Christ. And it came to us through his cross. That is, his sin-atoning crucifixion. And it is because we are being saved that we know that. If we were not being saved... We would not know that. That's why Paul says, the word of the cross is folly. To who? To those who are perishing. Unsaved people. People who are in the present condition of perishing are dead in their trespasses and sins. It's because they are in a state of rebellion against God and under the just judgment of God, and in the ongoing process of storing up wrath against them by their sin, that when they hear the gospel, they treat it as foolish. They desperately need the power of the cross. Please don't fill their ears with wise words. Please don't sugarcoat it. The cross saves from sin. I mean, I'm the preacher in this room this morning, this worship gathering here, but this applies to you. 
whenever you proclaim or herald the true gospel to sinners. God's inevitable wrath upon sinners, it's a bitter pill. But you must administer it if you hope to see the power of God on display in the salvation of sinners. And you have to accept ahead of time that you may not walk away from that encounter looking good. It, it may not feel successful. Everyone who is perishing will call it and you foolish. Silly, stupid, absurd, ludicrous, mean. If they stood in the crowd and saw Jesus nailed to the cross, they would spit on him and mock him. Because they're perishing. And they cannot unperish themselves. Isn't it an interesting contrast when you look at these words? We would expect Paul to contrast what the perishing view of folly with what they, the saved view of wisdom. Right? We would expect folly to be countered by wisdom. But he doesn't do that. He contrasts folly with power. What the unbeliever thinks could never work. Therefore, it would be folly to pursue that. It doesn't work. Is what works. So it would be wise to pursue it. It'd be wise to go after that power. Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians why this is so. And it all has to do with the sovereignty of God. No matter what people think is the way to success, God's thoughts are higher. No matter what, people, no matter what you have chosen to achieve success, God's, God's ways are higher. Pick up in verse 19. Let me just read that again. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Where is it written that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise? Well, it's, it's written in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. That's the verse that Paul quotes. Now, we just spent about a year in Genesis, and we have, we have exercised this muscle of taking what we find in the Old Testament and tracing its fulfillment in the New Testament. So we may have to we may have to do a little exercising this morning because this is what we do when we're in the New Testament. We, have to, we, get a, we get a verse quoted in the New Testament. We have to know to go back to the Old Testament and find out what that verse has with it. When Paul quotes an Old Testament verse, it's not just that verse that he's bringing into view for us. He's bringing everything attached to that view to us. So verse 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 14 of Isaiah it's just the handle on a suitcase. And Paul means for us to bring the whole suitcase forward and unpack it. We have to unpack the entire suitcase in order to understand its application here. And it's a big suitcase. Okay, This is a big suitcase this morning. Because we have to spend some time on it because it's the foundation of Paul's argument in these verses. 
Let me begin with this. Turn, turn back, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 29. God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. But the people in Jerusalem, where Isaiah is, think that their wisdom is better than God's. Okay? So we're gonna, I'm going to do two things. We're gonna, first, we're going to look at these verses in Isaiah chapter 29 to understand how God is describing his wisdom and how it's greater than their wisdom. Then we're going to zoom out and find out why he was addressing that in that context because of all of the things that are taking place around it. So bear with me. I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 29 and uh, verse 9. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and I'm just kind of ex- going to explain as we go along. Okay? Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Here's what's astonishing. Um, It's going to be not wine, but a lack of wisdom that's going to cause you to stumble. Uh, you're, you're, you're going to blind yourselves with your lack of wisdom. Uh, I'm not going to say anything to the prophets. Their eyes are going to be closed. I'm not going to say anything to the seers. I'm going to cover their heads. I'm going to put a veil on them so they can't see. Verse 11, And the wisdom of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Okay, so God is, God is comparing his, his wisdom to the pages of this book that's locked up. That's where God's wisdom is. When men give it to one who can read and say, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. Man cannot access the wisdom of God. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, they're so desperate. (laughs) Here, you who can't read, read this book. They say, I cannot read. Because man cannot access the wisdom of God. And so then he says, verse 13, the Lord says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So the Lord says, well, they're kind of saying stuff about being committed to me, and they're kind of doing religious activities that look like they're worshiping me, but they're not. Because their hearts are far from me. It's lip service. It's offensive. And and the commandments that they're following are not my commandments that apply to their hearts. The commandments that they're following are the commandments of men. Hey, do this stuff. Appear religious. Look spiritual. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, do you hear this? God says, even so, there will come a time when I'm going to do wonder upon wonder with these my people. And when I do, my wisdom will crush their wisdom. And everybody will see it. My discernment will crush their discernment. 
They'll be seen for what they are, unwise and foolish and without power. Skip over to verse 18. In that day, when God does wonder upon wonder, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. The deaf will hear God's wisdom. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The blind will suddenly see God's wisdom that's in the book. The meek shall obtain fresh joy. The meek who can't grab things for themselves, they'll be refreshed in the joy of the Lord. And the poor among you, the poor who are not heard and are forgotten, they will exalt the Holy One of Israel. Well, what about all those worldly people who are really, really successful? What's their life going to look like? Verse 20. For the ruthless, (laughs) that's those who are successful and get what they want, they shall come to what? Profit? No, nothing. What about those who scoff and say, don't, don't worry about God's word. Don't believe that stuff. That's foolish. What about them? Well, their scoffing will cease. They will be shut up. Well, what about those who, who watch to do evil? Will they prosper? You know, those, those greedy businessmen taking advantage of people? No, they're going to be cut off. What, what about those who, who lie? They, they make an honest man out to be a, an offender by their lies, you know? That, that's not going to work. Uh, what, about the, what about the snare? What about those who, who lay a snare for, for those who say, hey, what you're doing is wrong? Well, they're going to be reproved. They're going to be shown to be the ones who were wrong. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Those of, those of you who are right and are saying so and are being turned aside by the whole big group, you'll be shown to be right. That's what's going to happen to the worldly wise. So God's saying all this about his great wisdom and the tiny, puny, ineffective wisdom of man. His wisdom's great, man's wisdom is folly, and they can't even access this. It has to be given. Why why is he making this point? What's the context of God's words in the whole grand scheme of Isaiah? Well, remember back, the Assyrians... History lesson, the Assyrians, the, the ruling, reigning superpower, have just been marauding their way through all of the land, gobbling up kingdom after kingdom, taking them over to be their own, placing them all in captivity. And those Assyrians have finally gotten to the walls of Jerusalem, and they've laid siege to Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah, king of the Jews. Now, before this happened, God promised to Hezekiah that, that he would save Jerusalem. God says, Hezekiah, don't fear. Trust in me, I'll deliver you. But all of Hezekiah's wise men and military leaders think it's a foolish thing as they look over the wall at the Assyrian conquering army to trust in God. My goodness, why would we do that? Here's what the wise men think they should do. They should strike a military alliance with Egypt, like the second best world superpower at the time. Let's, let's, uh, let's strike a, a, a military alliance with Egypt, and then together we'll fight Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and by our combined military power and strategy, we will have been proven to be wise and powerful and to overcome and deliver ourselves. And so here's Hezekiah with this promise from God. He's the king, and, and here's all of the wise men saying, this is what you need to do. This is what will bring success. 
what will Hezekiah do? Turn to chapter 37. It's just back a couple more. We're still in Isaiah chapter 37. Then pick up in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So this is a, this is a letter from the Rabshakeh who's, who's speaking on behalf of the Assyrians and he's mocking God and he's saying that your God can't save you and you're in real trouble, Hezekiah. You just need to open the gates or we're going to lay siege to you. That's the letter. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. He went to the temple in Jerusalem and spread before the Lord the letter. He said, look at all these words of mocking. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were no gods but the work of men's hands and wood and stone therefore they were destroyed so now verse 20 O lord our god save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the lord so there's hezekiah's decision I'm not going to listen to the wisdom of the world and all of, my, all of my wise advisors. I'm going to trust in the Lord. What does the Lord do? Look at verse 37. Still in chapter 37. Look over now. Look over now to, I'm sorry, verse 36. That very night, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their camp. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, departed and returned home to live at Nineveh. So did things go well for Sennacherib? So Sennacherib goes home, and one day he's worshiping his, his god in his temple, and Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, good boys, struck him down with the sword, and after they escaped into the land of Ararat and Esheradon, his son reigned in his place. Was it foolish and unwise to trust in God? Was it weak and unpowerful to trust in God? No. It was wise and powerful to trust in God. Back to, the, back to chapter 29. You can hear his words now in verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, those Deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us and who knows us? Those are the wise men conspiring. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Look down to verse 22. Because here's the outcome. Here's the result. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. So this is about Jacob's descendants. And it's as if Jacob's in heaven now. And he's kind of looking down uh, on his descendants after him. And, and Jacob shall no more be ashamed. He was ashamed of them. 
Because their hearts were far from God and he wasn't, they weren't obeying him or following him. But there shall be no more shame. No more will his face grow pale. For when he sees his children who are described as the work of my hands. When he sees his children who are not doing their own unwise work but are the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit, they'll be brought back to understanding. They they think they're so spiritual by following the unwise leaders of the world. They'll, They'll be brought back to God's wisdom. And those who murmur, those who complain, want to do it their own way, they will finally accept God's instruction. What is at stake in trusting the wisdom and the power of God over the wisdom and the power of men? What's at stake? Life and death. The kingdom is at stake. Everything rests on this. The wisdom and the power of God is greater than the wisdom and the power of men. One leads to life. One leads to destruction. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 20 which comes after this handle and the whole suitcase that comes with it. After all of that, Paul asks, So, where are your wise men, Corinth? Where are the scribes of your day? the Jewish experts in the Old Testament law? Where are the debaters of your day, the Gentile professional speakers with eloquent wisdom? Has not God already made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. Paul is speaking in light of everything he just referred to in Isaiah. This is already a done deal. Long ago, God showed that he destroyed the wisdom of men with his wisdom and destroyed the discernment of men with his discernment. (laughs) You want to find your wise men? That's a foolish thing to go after. And he moves into verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You will not think your way to salvation. You will not talk your way out of God's judgment with your clever words. You will not reason away God's certain and just wrath upon your sin. But there is a way for you to have the wonderful things that God will do for his people, wonder upon wonder, how? You must believe the gospel of the cross. You must place your faith in Christ crucified. Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
those formerly deaf to God's wisdom will hear God's wisdom. And those formerly blind to God's wisdom will see God's wisdom. You meek, you'll be refreshed. You poor will become the very work of his hands. And together we will stand in awe of the Holy One of Israel. Now this is, a, this is another matter of context and form that we need, to, we need to catch and not miss. All the modern translations say that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, singling out the content of the cross, right? It's the folly of what we preach. But it's not just the content, it's also the method that are considered folly. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're reading the ESV, then down at the bottom you'll see a footnote that says, or, or this could be translated, the folly of preaching. The old King James Version reads, for after that, after what by the way? After explaining all of the facts of Israel in in Isaiah chapter 29, that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. After all of that, after God made foolish the wisdom of the world, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's the old King James Version. So the folly is the preaching of the cross. The cross being the content and the preaching being the method. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. Why does Christ crucified appear so weak and foolish to those who are perishing? I mean, there are other spiritualities, options on the shelf for them to choose from. Other world religions. They have some pretty silly requirements. Why is Christ crucified? So weak and foolish to those who are perishing. Well, Paul preached Christ crucified when he was in Corinth, back in, back in Acts, to the first, to the Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles, and he points out two idolatries that he confronted when he did that. The gospel of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because their idea of success could not include suffering. A Messiah, a Christ, they're the same thing, one's the Greek word, one's the Hebrew word. A Messiah who suffered and died at the hands of their Roman enemies just wouldn't work. There's no power in that Messiah. He wouldn't have the power to save. To them, Christ crucified, it's an oxymoron. The word crucified cancels out the word Messiah. Doesn't work. The Jews were trained in the scriptures to look for a Messiah who would deliver them from captivity and prosper them with blessings and restore the kingdom of Israel. And in their estimation, when Jesus was mocked and beaten and killed on a Roman cross, he failed to meet their expectations. Where was the sign of his might? Where was the sign of his power? 
Where was the sign of his regal majesty? Where was his kingdom? To them, Jesus was a vulgar and cursed one. Cursed is the man who's hung upon a tree, as Jesus hung upon the cross. It was blasphemous to them. The cross that Paul preached was a stumbling block to their believing in him. And we can see this. We can see this reaction in the Gospels when the chief priests and the crowds mocked Jesus saying, come on down, save yourself from the cross. If you're going to save others, you've got to be able to save yourself. They mocked him. But we can also see it on the Emmaus Road. Remember the, the, the Emmaus Road at the, at the end of Luke's Gospel? Two men who had been quietly following Jesus for years, met Jesus on the road, and they tell him what's been happening in Jerusalem. That Jesus has been killed on a cross, buried in a tomb, and now there's a rumor that his corpse is missing. Do you remember their reaction to Jesus? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you hear them stumbling? I mean, they're disappointed. Their expectation has been disappointed. They're not being cynical. I don't hear any cynicism in that. They're not being hard-hearted. They were genuinely disappointed that their hope in Christ had ended in crucifixion. They were stumbling over the cross. It doesn't fit their idea of a Messiah. It doesn't fit their idea of how God ought to go about saving sinners. A Christ who is crucified is weak and foolish. It's just not believable. The words Greek and Gentile, they're interchangeable here. They mean everybody that's not a Jew. They can't reason nor rationalize their way into believing that they should give their lives to a criminal who was executed on a Roman cross. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How's he going to help me? Did you know that Romans never crucified Roman citizens, not even Roman criminals? They never used crucifixion or a cross on a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was such a horrific, humiliating, scandalous, degrading way to die that it was only applied to the worst criminals among foreigners. But they would never do that to a citizen of Rome. Crucifixion was such a vile thing that it was not something that, that people were even to think of. Don't dwell on that. Don't think about that. And cross was such a vile word that it was never to be spoken in polite society. You wouldn't say that word because of what it represents. They'd immediately close their ears. So, you can see how the church, in every age, has to address the idea of success, and how the church is tempted then to adjust the content or the method of the gospel to appear more powerful. For its members to appear spiritually wise, spiritually strong in order to attract the perishing, even with good motives. 
A church, a good church, would never change the message of the cross. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, hey, let's rewrite our doctrine here. No, you wouldn't. But they can change the tone of the message. They can shift the perspective of the message away from God and onto the hearer. What's Christ done for me? Talk, talk a little bit less about sin and try to be a little bit more therapeutic. Here's how God can help you today. Talk a little bit less about the cross and generate a more comfortable vibe. How's our vibe this morning? How are we vibing? Are you comfortable? You know, here's what, uh, here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon had to say in his day. So Charles, Charles Spurgeon, preacher in London, uh, mid-1800s. So we're going back a ways. Listen to what he says. He says, are we feeding sheep or herding goats? The devil has never done so much a clever thing than hinting to the church that part of her mission is to provide entertainment to the people with a view to winning them. My first contention is that providing amusement for people is nowhere spoken of in Scripture as a function of the church. And providing amusement is direct antagonism to the teaching and life of Christ and the apostles. Had Christ introduced more bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular. And I would hear him say things like, Run after those people, Peter. Tell them we will have a different style of service tomorrow. Something short and attractive with little preaching. We'll have a pleasant evening. Tell them that they will be sure to enjoy it. We must get those people somehow. No. They had boundless confidence in the gospel and employed no other weapon. Spurgeon says. You know, in our day, uh, it's been widely admitted that the greatest threat to the church is pragmatism. Let's just do whatever works. Which is just kind of a current reworking of the use of wisdom to generate power to result in success. It's doing spiritual things in worldly ways. The problem is that in changing the method, in adopting any form of eloquent wisdom, in trying to preach the cross with worldly wise words, we end up reducing or removing the impact of the message. That's what Paul says, we're, we're emptying the cross of its power. Which is like functionally changing the message. And this is what the church in Corinth was doing. What becomes clear in this letter is that they had shifted the focus of their spirituality off of Christ crucified and onto the power and success displayed in spiritual gifts. Look at what I can do. Look at how spiritual I am. I'm not spiritually weak. I'm not foolish. My spirituality is wise and powerful and successful. 
So they elevate the spiritual gifts over Christ crucified. You know that churches today use technology and sociology and psychology while downplaying theology to appear successful. To promise wisdom and power to make your life better now. You can take up the spirit of power rather than taking up the cross of Christ. That sounds better. That's eloquent preaching. Many denominations have done the very same things that the Corinthians did. Elevating the spiritual gifts over Christ who is primary in the church. And so Paul says you need to be aware. You need to be aware of this. As you nudge the gospel into the appearance of success, you empty the gospel of its power. Because the gospel is about weakness and death. Because we are weak in our sin and spiritually dead. Christ became weak for us on the cross and was crucified dead in our place to give us spiritual life. The gospel is about weakness and death. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God that crushes the sinful folly of men. The wisdom and power of God in Christ was hidden to all of us when we were perishing. Even when we first heard it, we couldn't hear it. Even when we first saw it, we couldn't see it. Even when we first wondered if it might be true, we couldn't grasp it. That's why Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's verse 24. It's a rebuke. Do you hear it? It's a rebuke. Church, you are no longer stumbling Jews and foolish Gentiles. You've been called. You've been declared holy in Christ and have been called to live holy in Christ. You called upon the name of Christ and in his wisdom and power, God saved you by the cross of Christ crucified. Christ has enriched your lives with his indwelling spirit. He has given you the grace of gifts which you have received. Christ is the wise one sustaining you. He is the powerful one who will make you guiltless on the final day. Why are you acting this way? You know that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So stop it. You know this not because of your own wisdom and power, but because God is the one who has called you by his wisdom and power. Yes. This is the wisdom and power of God to choose to save sinners. We are foolish to think that we can bring about the forgiveness of our own sins when we are powerless to do so. You are dead, dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. We will not find success that way. It was never in God's plan at all 
that men would come to know him by the exercising of their own thinking, their own wisdom, and their own power. This is the electing love of God. We are saved by his free and sovereign choice. It pleases him. It pleases him to save sinners and to do so through the folly of Christ crucified preached. Why? Why? Why has he chosen to save sinners through the cross of Christ crucified and no other way? So that we would know that he is wise and powerful and good and gracious. So that as the workmanship of his hands, we would exalt him in the name of Christ. But also, so that we would reject worldly wisdom and worldly power and worldly success. Not be fooled or lured by them. Because they cannot even approach the wisdom and the power and the love of God that we already have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. True spirituality is grounded in the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and we thank you that you are all wise and all powerful. Father, we, we need even now to repent of the worldly ways in which we pursue spirituality or display spirituality. Father, we ask that you would help us to behold Christ crucified and only him. Father, that we would stand at the foot of the cross and declare him and love him and trust him who alone has brought us peace with you. Father, cause us each and every day to go to the book of your wisdom and to find the wisdom of God there for our day, to find the power of God there for our daily living, that you would sustain us in this way, knowing that you will make us guiltless, in the end. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.